It is possible for me to hear and bear in mind the story of the Passion of our Lord, but it is impossible for me to hear and bear it in mind without forming mental images of it in my heart. For whether I will or not, when I hear of Christ, an image of a man hanging on a cross takes form in my heart, just as the reflection of my face naturally appears in the water when I look into it. If it is not a sin, but good to have the image of Christ in my heart, why should it be a sin to have it in my eyes? Martin Luther Welcome everyone, you are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Selwyn Heidi to talk about iconoclasm. That's going to be a fun subject, right Selwyn? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Definitely a potentially contentious one, but it should be a good time. So Right, well, you know, it'll be fine. How's the weather in North Dakota? Oh, the weather's good. It, things are finally getting nice and warm. I'm just waiting to get a few of the plants into the garden. I know it seems kind of late for some part of the, parts of the country, but up here where, you know, it was still below freezing for several nights, not all that long ago, we just really have to wait a long time. So a nice short growing season means it'll be fast and very furious here pretty quick, but it should still, it should still be good. Yeah, I'm late getting everything in, but mo- pretty much everything's in. So we'll see. How it goes, uh, sunflowers are poking up. I planted those in honor of you and the great state of North Dakota, because that's well, what grows up there. That is what grows, and we and you know we have the the good giants sunflower seeds. If you see them in gas stations, those come out of North Dakota. So, you know, maybe something just to think about when you're when you're choosing your favorite sunflower seed next time you're in a station. So, or is that just North Dakota? I'm not sure. All I'm saying is it might be better for you than chewing tobacco, but why not use both? (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to go that far, but go on. This podcast brought to you by Redman and Dukes. (laughs) All right. So icons. Now this is a, fun subject, and it really encompasses two main periods of church history. What we want to do today is kind of give an overview of what iconoclasm is, and, you know, the iconodules also. What is iconoclasm? Why has the church dealt with it? And is there a place for visual art within the church today? And I think we're going to find a very interesting interesting history here. Just a very simple, a very simple definition, Zelwyn. What is iconoclasm? Iconoclasm is the belief that images are opposed to the gospel, basically, that you cannot visually represent God because otherwise you would be trying to, that you'd basically be sinning in, visu- in trying to visually represent him in any way. The ideas for it, of course, come from the Old Testament, where uh, the Israelites were specifically forbidden from creating certain kinds of images, you know, and using that to represent God. But as the Christian church has gone forward in time, they've come to realize that that was a specific prohibition that, you know, has, has shifted, at least in the New Testament. And I think that's something that we can talk about maybe in a little bit more detail. But yeah, so basically, in a nutshell, iconoclasm is literally, you know, like the destruction of images. Right. And we'll talk a little bit about um, the Old Testament use of images and then how that's used by the iconoclasts. So right. so we'll, f- we'll first fo- focus on the iconomaxia. That, that's that first period of iconoclasm uh, within the church. And then we'll get into the Protestant Reformation and what happens. First things first, and we'll revisit this towards the end too, but religious art can be a very good thing. For a number of reasons, I mean, as a teaching tool, yes, but even just, I mean, even just aesthetically, it uh, it looks good. There is something to be said for beauty. Then the debate goes: Okay, can it be art for art's sake, or does religious art need to have some rules, some boundaries, and some guidelines? Now, Zelwyn, you were telling me uh, before we started recording that you have never seen a bad example of religious art. <laughs> Is that what I said? I don't remember saying well, it that. It might have been. It might have been. <laughs> so, you know, as we know, there can be horrible representations. There can be theologically problematic art. 
and there can be just plain bad art that is edifying neither for artist nor observer. And, and so we want to avoid those things. Now here, though, we're going to be talking about specifically devotional objects, which are going to become the norm in the church, both East and West, although they're expressed a little bit differently and have different, shall we say rules? I mean, I think we can say, we can say rules. And it's probably safe to say that the West has a greater variety of art than the Christian East, as far as stylistically. Yeah, I would say because the the Christian East in particular, very early on, takes on a very, I guess, how do you want to say, a very narrow idea of, you know, what was acceptable, what is unacceptable. They have a lot of specific traditions, which they still continue, uh, even to this day. I know when they go to write new icons, for example, there's artists have a certain degree of artistic license, but they're kind of bound by what has gone before. So, you know, there's always this sense of the continuity in the East. And so it all, that's why a lot of these icons that you see coming out of the, the Byzantine traditions or the, the Eastern Orthodox traditions all kind of tend to look alike. You know, they have these kind of constraints going on with them. But in the West, I mean, there is maybe a greater degree of freedom. I don't want, I don't mean that in a negative sense. I just mean that uh, the West didn't have these kinds of traditions uh, binding them a little bit more when it came to the visual arts. Right. right. Exactly. And so we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through things and what what type of art was used, perhaps certain types of abuses that crop up, maybe positive points for one style over the other. But when we talk about icons, most what people picture in their mind is the two-dimensional Eastern style paintings. Right. Uh, or rep- I mean or prints now really uh, for the most part. So or in many cases, you know, if you're going the cheap route, uh, typically they're supposed to be hand-painted copies of historic images, right? Or holy images, right. we'll say. Right, right. So we're going to talk about visual visual representations in, in general. So let's dig into the history, shall we? Sure. So the first iconoclastic period is going to be roughly 726 to 787. And you're going to deal with Emperor Leo III. And we're back to Byzantium, where we all yearn to be, but yet it is no more. Will it return? (laughs) We don't know yet. So Leo III is a successful military commander, uses Greek fire uh, rather effectively against the Arabs, saves Europe from the Muslims. Tell me if you've heard this story before. But he also has some military failures. And he attributes military failures to God's judgment, that God is displeased with something that he's done. And so what might God be displeased with? Yeah, and this is and this is kind of, maybe before we go on a little bit further, it's worth pointing out that this is not unusual, especially in Byzantine history. We're, we're not skipping over the Sixth Ecumenical Council. We're still going to go into the, those details even though we're talking about the period at the time period of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Right. But anyway, the point being is that they very often viewed everything in the lens of God's pleasure or displeasure. We saw this actually happen with Justinian before. He attributed the first half of his reign when he was having all the successes, conquering the Persians, conquering Italy, you know, retaking Africa. He saw that as God's favor. But it was after some major setbacks about halfway through his reign that caused him to step back and reflect and say, maybe I'm doing something that's, you know, not actually pleasing God, and that's why I'm losing. And that caused him to reject his earlier position of trying to find reconciliation with the monophysites and say, okay, maybe we just need to solve this question once for all, which led to, of course, the Fifth Ecumenical Council, uh, the Second Council of Constantinople. So this idea of worldly events revealing the pleasure or the displeasure of God is actually a fairly common theme in this time period. Right. And as I said, we're going to go a little bit quicker through this because we don't want to dwell too much on the detail because there's so much uh, going on here. So it's right. kind of the Cliff, Cliff's Notes version, right? Right. Basically, like uh, the, the final event that really motivates him to think it's God's wrath, he has some military reversals, and then there is a volcanic eruption. And so he sees this as the wrath of God. 
And then he begins to issue a number of economic and military reforms. Once that's done, he turns his eye toward the church, and you might say his ire toward the church, because he has some animosity toward certain factions. He doesn't like monks, and there's a lot of monks at this time. (laughs) You know, why might a war general not like monks? Well, they're exempt from civil service, and they're also uh, tax-exempt. So if you think that us fighting for our tax-exempt status is new, well, it's actually quite ancient. And of course, icons. And so there is a dispute about icons, and it's bishops from Asia, Eastern Asia Minor. Okay, and so he begins to exert his authority over the church because the precedent was already set. The emperor has a great deal of authority over the church. So in 726, he begins to issue edicts against icons and their veneration. And he continues to issue edicts until about 730. So he doesn't like icons. He condemns them as idolatry. Now, it's important to remember that he doesn't just say, hey, I don't like pictures. The iconoclasts have a a few reasons why they don't like them. One would be the second commandment, as we already mentioned. Thou shalt not make into thee any graven image. Lutherans, it's in the text. It's in the text of the the Decalogue, (laughs) so bear with me. Uh, what they would consider the second, or what they would number as the second commandment, thou shalt not make into thee any graven image. They would say that it is forbidden to do this. God has said you can't make a likeness of him, and you can't worship any image. So you're now venerating icons of saints or or of Christ. This is blasphemy. And so basically, he he condemns those who are pro icon as idolaters, and that's a heavy charge. To lay against someone. Now, obviously, this uh, causes a lot of controversy because they've had icons for a long time now. I mean, the majority of the church, even church fathers, defend icons as important aids to spiritual life, even worship. Uh, you had the Council of uh, Truyo in 692, or sorry, Trullo, Latin versus Spanish, uh, <laughs> affirm the propriety of making and venerating icons. So you do have that precedent there. Nevertheless, Emperor is Emperor Leo III is not happy. There are uh, Christians willing to die for this. He does not care. So these people are willing to die. The Church of Rome is not pleased with Leo's actions. They hold a council in 731 that not only condemned iconoclasm in general, but excommunicated the iconoclasts, the icon breakers. So, Zelwyn, what's the counterpart to an iconoclast? Yeah, I mean, the, the opposing party, I guess, if you want to put it in those terms, are what are called the iconoduels, the icon lovers, I guess would be the, the easiest way of translating that, the image lovers, those mm-hmm. who uphold it and uh, defend it as being okay within the church. Can I just point out here, just as a, a side note, this isn't just like there was one corner of the the church that he was going after, and then they all just kind of rallied around it. No, this was actually a fairly widespread phenomenon to the point where uh, Byzantine armies would actually carry icons before them going into battle, and you know they had icon um, icons over their gates, you know, and every on every you know on their walls. I mean, literally everywhere. So for right. Leo to come out and say this and thinking that this may have been the reason for God's displeasure, it isn't like he's just going after one little subsection. I mean, this is very much built into the the culture of the church at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent point. And he's being influenced by bishops and priests who are closer to Islamic lands. And that is significant, because you could make the argument reasonably that they're influenced by Islam. And Islam has a very, at at this time, and continuing to to this day, has a very strict prohibition of images. And so it could have been that they're actually influenced by the teachings of Islam here. And I don't think it's a stretch. (laughs) I mean, you could say Judaism, you could say this, but they don't really represent the broadest uh, swath of the church. And and so this, this has happened here. And now... Later in church history, certain reformers will appeal to the iconoclasts as a, 
as support for their position against images, but we'll talk about that when we get there. What we have here is, really though, they're, they're only focused on the images. They don't have a problem with veneration in general. They, they'll still venerate objects and kiss the cross and do other things. So they are not some kind of proto-Puritans or anything like that. It really is strictly about artistic representations of God and then by extension the saints. Now you could, nobody is going to you know, cause a great uproar over a depiction of a historical figure. But when you're depicting Christ, who we confess as very God, that is the biggest issue for a lot of people. And that's where a lot of the ink is used to talk about how can we, if Christ is God, how can we depict him visually since the Bible prohibits making unto thee any graven image? Right. Uh, so what is what do some of the church fathers say? Well, I mean, I suppose you could go with the the traditional arguments that because Christ became man, therefore, you know, he's kind of become a living image. I mean, that's the the kind of argument you you very often hear to justify this that God has made himself visible in that way. You could also just point out, you know, or I, I guess I'll ask you the question, you know, you know, what is it that we are doing with these images? And maybe mm-hmm. that's the, the real question behind this whole debate. Right. You know, so so let's let's take a look at something that John of Damascus says. Okay. Okay. So he says, In former times God, who is without former body, could never be depicted, but now, when God is seen in the flesh conversing with men, I make an image of the God whom I see. I do not worship matter, I worship the creator of matter who became matter for my sake who willed to take his abode in matter, who worked out my salvation through matter. Never will I cease honoring, that's venerating, right? Proskinesis, the matter which wrought my salvation. And so that's a that's not even the way we formulate that today, talking about worshiping matter. But it's, say, it's basically, in so many words, saying that because God came incarnate, that is, God became uh, material, a specific material, you know, human flesh, but now we can depict him in that because he entered into creation and through the incarnation becomes part of it. And I do think it's a rather powerful powerful argument. You see this in on the incarnation as well, that the incarnation is so significant that the rules kind of change a little bit. <laughs> I mean, for lack of a better I mean it's you know, it's a it's a tightrope we have to walk here, but that is what's going on. Now Leo III is uh, concerned about superstitions rising up around images. Would, would you happen to know any, like, like what he might be talking about there? Um, well, I mean, I suppose you could just go with some of the, the practices they've already been using them for. I mean, to, to carry uh, image, like the images of the, the Virgin and, and the child before them into battle as a kind of symbol that was going to guarantee them victory, you know, that kind of thing. You have images uh, which are being brought out during times of great distress as a way of calming the people. I mean, it really does. It really does become a a, a way, or at least a part of popular piety, used for what we might consider fairly superstitious reasons. Yeah, I mean, and I think there's a fine line though, because something can be legitimately devotional mm-hmm. and spiritually beneficial and not fall into a superstition. So if if a person looks at a cross on the wall for comfort, or a crucifix right. rather, you know, that's not superstition. If I bury St. Joseph's statue upside down in my yard so that my house will sell quicker, <laughs> that would be superstition. And I do think, especially in the West, but possibly in the East, superstition does grow as the centuries go on. Sure. But that's not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back with more Byzantine esoterica right after this. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi talking about the iconoclastic controversy. It gets a little bit tricky. You, you might hear me stumbling because I'm getting like trying to keep all the dates and names straight in the middle of a uh, plague and riot induced fog. But I look forward to the <laughs> Godzilla induced fog of next month or whatever's coming. So that'll be fun. <laughs> It'll be so, good. So so that I don't, in this particular episode, bore you with all the names and dates in a detailed manner, let me, let's just go through this really quick and see what happens, because I want to take a look at the iconoclastic arguments and the iconoduels arguments. Okay, so we recap. We've got Leo. Does He thinks that God's wrath is incurred upon the church in part because icons. Majority of the church, not really on his side, but they can't do much. He's the emperor. Leo dies, we get Constantine V. He's even more opposed to icons, which leads to the Iconoclastic Council of 754. Constantine V is out. Leo IV is now here, a little less strict. You get Empress Irene. She likes the icons. Seventh Ecumenical Council. Second Council of Nicaea affirms the veneration of icons. And so it's been that way um, on down through the centuries. We're still in the East now. Even though it's an ecumenical council, this is pre-schism. We'll get to the West when we get closer to the Reformation. Now, you would think that an ecumenical council would seal the deal. Not necessarily. There is a second period of iconoclasm that occurs uh, 814 to 843. That's Leo V, very popular name among emperors at the time. (laughs) He also sees military failure as divine displeasure. We go on through Michael II, Theophilus, Theodora. Lady again, which eventually this period ends and the commemoration of the defeat of iconoclasm finally is the feast of the triumph of orthodoxy, which is pretty cool, right? Uh, It's a good festival. It's an interesting festival. And uh, that usually happens. Orthodox listeners, let me know if I'm right, but it's the first Sunday of Lent in the East. First Sunday of Great Lent, I think, is when they do it. And so, you know, um, they are big on remembering their history and remembering their victory. And with that in mind, of course, as we study the iconoclastic controversy, uh, we understand that much of our sources come from those who win. And the winners are ultimately the iconoduels. And so that's, um, that's the Byzantine controversy in as small of a nutshell as I can make it. <laughs> so let's move back again then and talk about some of the iconoclastic arguments. Number one, they condemn the making of any lifeless image, so that would be a painting like the typical icons you see today, or a statue, a three-dimensional representation, that was intended to represent Christ or the saints. And they maintain that they have the support of the Holy Scriptures and of the Church Fathers. Okay, now, their, their biblical argument is going to be that the Old Testament prohibits the making of images. The sticky wicket in that is, of course, that while the second commandment does prohibit the making of images, God also uh, commands the making of certain images, like the bronze serpent or the angels over the Ark of the Covenant. So logically, it can't be a prohibition of all images. Right. So I think they're wrong there on the saint side of it, as just far as, as the argument of can we make a representation. Now, when we talk about God, though, Now we come back to the incarnation argument, okay? And we'll get to that in a minute. So we'll do the iconoclasts, then the iconoduels. The second for the iconoclast is a a real religious images must be the exact likeness. And by that, they mean the same substance. So the only true icon for the iconoclast would be the Lord's Supper, would be the Holy Eucharist, if it's the same substance, which we would confess that it is. Well, and I think maybe something that's worth pointing out here too, as we go through this, and we're because we're really talking about arguments and being made by uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox with Eastern Orthodox understanding, mm-hmm. and th- maybe this is part of the reason why we wanted to talk about this subject in general, because the reason why Orthodoxy maintains images down to this day, and the reason why we in the West, you know, defend certain kinds of of images are often for very different reasons because uh, for for the, and again, people can correct me if I'm wrong in this, but uh, the, the expression I very often heard used to describe images is, you know, this idea of it being a window into heaven. 
that in some sure. sense we are seeing something of the reality behind this image, you know, yeah, so absolutely. that we are we are seeing the saint in his in the glory that they're in now. We are seeing Christ in some of his own image, you know, some of the the glory which he has. And again, I'm I'm trying to present this as fairly as as I can here. Right, and we're gonna get we're gonna unpack them a little more as we go through. That that is the position, but th- this becomes the dominant position. I mean, this is what's going to lead into the ecumenical council. Right. Uh, so well, we have to we have to talk about it in these terms. Right. Well, the reason I bring it up then is because when we're talking about the the Byzantine iconoclasts, you know, they're really coming at this with these kinds of understandings. You know, if we, if we are approaching Christ in some sense through this image for them they're saying no you can't do that because the only way you could truly do that is with like they say the same substance and that would be where he has been promised to be which is the Lord's Supper right right sure yeah that that is the argument yeah so that's um that's the only reason I'm going on that little tangent there so no no it's very good very good (laughs) Uh, I mean they're also going to say that uh, and and right that the two natures of Jesus can't be divided and any true image of Christ must be able to represent both his divine nature and his human nature. So sure. to say that we're only representing the human nature would be a tantamount to Nestorianism, because you're dividing the natures of Christ. <laughs> uh, They're going to say that it's an innovation. It's a return to pagan practice to use these objects. And they would say because of things like um, the Synod of Elvira in the 300s or... Uh, certain bishops um, <laughs> writing at the same uh, around the same time, same century anyway, were opposed to icons. And and at the sin of of, El- of Elvira, it does seem that they say that pictures shouldn't be put in churches so that they don't become objects of adoration. Again, these are localized councils, though, not representing. Right. Uh, it, it's not Catholic, but they're not incorrect to say there is some small measure of precedent here. Sure. Okay. The iconophiles now, or iconodule. I'm going to switch back and forth between iconophile and iconodule. So, icon lovers. The chief, <laughs> the chief theologian is going to be you know, like John of Damascus, some other monks, Mansur. But okay, the iconophiles are going to say that the biblical commandment forbidding images of God was superseded by the incarnation of Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is God incarnate in a visible manner. You can't see God the Father. You can't see God the Holy Spirit. But where you see Christ, you see God. Therefore, they're not depicting the invisible God, but God as he appeared incarnate, God as he appeared in the flesh. And so this is a very persuasive argument for many. Now, of course, they also point out Old Testament evidence. Uh, again, the two golden cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim is also on the the Holy of Holies, or um, the curtain in the Holy of Holies. So there's there's more grave or there's more images there. So they're they're making some of the similar arguments that even we would use to defend images. Now, second, in their view, uh, idols are images without substance or reality. That's that's to say that they're false gods. They're either images of wood and stone of fictitious creatures or as the Bible would say, demons. They don't represent what's real. So if you see a picture of an Aztec god, whatever his name is, or or you see a statue of Zeus, well, there is no reality there. There is no Zeus. There might have been something like Zeus, but the reality behind it was it was a demon, right? So you take the sun god in in Peru or whatever that they depict. That doesn't represent reality, that represents a demon's illusion of reality. But again, you you hear the the same argument that I was kind of bringing out before, and the same understanding that the image, the the true image, uh, is representing something of the reality, you know, behind it. So Correct. you have the, the saint, for example, and the reality of the saint behind it. You have Christ, for example, and the reality of Christ behind it, and that's what makes them legitimate. Yeah, and that's so, why the false gods don't. It's not because they're images. It's 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 not because they're images for the iconophiles. It's because of what they represent. They represent falsehood. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the argument. So they represent something false. They represent something that's not true. Okay, well, images of Christ or saints of the past couldn't be idols insofar as they accurately predict, or actually predict, accurately represent 
what's there. Right. Okay. So if you have an icon of the Philoxania of Abraham, for example, and you have, uh, you know, the angels there and it's representing exactly what's going on. Well, that's not idolatry because you depicted the angels, uh, which is, you know, possibly a theophany there, but because you're showing what the scriptures have described. Okay. And, and so that truth is represented by that image. And of course, if you have, say, just the depiction of a saint and their conception, well, that saint is depicted, you know, say with a halo, right? Or with something. Well, that that image of saint whatever is meant to represent that he is a saint, so he is in heaven, and there'll be other symbols representing truths about him and what he represented. So this is the argument here, mm-hmm. um, that it's not the image, it's the representation. Mm-hmm. Okay, again, I'm not arguing for or against, I'm just I'm just telling you what they said. So they go, they, they find the, the opponents in earlier history. They say, well, oral history says that icons were part of our tradition. And then they pointed to a few patristic writings approving of icons. So they, they're doing what the iconoclasts are doing. They're saying, okay, you have precedent. Well, we have precedent too. And they're saying orally, I mean, just look around, look and see what, you know, what everybody's Look at, look at all these icons around and how people use them. Clearly, this has been the tradition handed down to us. Then we get, though, into uh, the miracles associated with icons. Right. Which is interesting. So icons are legitimate because they can produce miracles. And then you have another tradition that I don't know. I mean, I could see, like, all right, Elijah's bones, whatever. You know, they healed a guy. So we'll, we'll set the miracle question aside. But there's also a tradition that they bring up that says that that the Theotokos and Christ both uh, set and had their icons painted. So they actually modeled for the icons. And I just, I, I don't want to ridicule that, but I, that is, that's oral tradition alone. I don't think we have any hard evidence of that. They said, finally, look, if, if we're going to make a decision about this, it needs to be done in a council by the bishops, not imposed by a human emperor. Hmm. That's an interesting take. Yeah. But, (laughs) well, and then of course you have the the tradition of the Mandelian, which was supposedly an image from Edessa made without hands, you know, kind of like the the tradition of Veronica uh, wiping the face of Christ as he went to the cross. You know, this idea of the image which has just been produced all by itself, like God himself made this icon. So, I mean, you have all kinds of oral traditions that are going on, right. usually and, in support of this kind of imagery, right? Yeah, and, and they also make an interesting argument based upon, well, the emperor allows his portrait to be made and nobody opposes it, which is a, I mean, I think that's an argument towards flattery or maybe an argument towards shame. But, <laughs> but yeah, so so the icon made without hands, things like that. This is a very interesting concept for me because we teeter toward... Like our gut reaction is to say these things can't happen because that goes against reason and we've no hard evidence for it. At the same time, I, 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 it's probably not impossible that there could be miraculous images. It's just a question of how would you discern between what's legitimate and what's not. Is the icon made without hands legitimate? The East would say yes. Would they say the same thing for the Virgin of Guadalupe? Absolutely not. It, it becomes a very deceptive kind of thing to try to discern. And so sticking with the biblical argument and the historical argument for us today, I think is going to be more persuasive. And that's just us, right? Two goys in, uh, in, in America. It's not going to work to say, well, we've got this icon made without hands all over the place. Your grandmother has all your grandmothers have it in their living room. Why? Of course this is, this is true. Why wouldn't it be? We don't have that, that strong uh, connection to it. And so I don't know how persuasive that would be for us. Well, and that that whole argument, too, is one that doesn't really carry as much weight in the, the you know, a more modern period like we live in, because they're what they're really doing is, is they're appealing to the past as a way of making their arguments. Oh, okay. yeah, we would never do that. Well, in Lutheranism okay. today. But but he, but hear me out here. <laughs> hear me out here. No, I, I am. I'm with you. But what I mean is, is that. Appealing to the past in that way and, and assuming that that appeal is going to be decisive is not something that our, 
our current time, you know, our current age really finds convincing. We want to, if we find an argument convincing, history tends to support that, you know, say, okay, this is what we've done forever kind of a thing. But we very often want to see like, what is the reason for doing this? You know, what kind of other proofs does this have? So that the, the historical argument really becomes the, the clincher rather than the main argument like right. it was And, and to them. be fair, the, 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 this is what the iconophiles do. Right. I mean, they do make a biblical and historical argument. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm just saying that the, the, the historical argument is a lot more decisive for them than it is for us. Right. Just in general. Right. So. Now, as far as this period in the West, you do have broad support for religious art. But then some stuff gets complicated by uh, Byzantine papacy. We'll put it that way. So that's something that we really can't get into. So we'll keep uh, our, our Western focus in the next segment on uh, on the Reformation and talk about some things that have gone up. Um, and that's really where we'll talk about different types of superstition. In the last few minutes here, since we're talking about Eastern iconography, and we'll talk about good art perhaps if we have time, but I do think that Eastern iconography has something over Western. Namely, that there are rules and patterns one has to follow. So once an icon has been approved and established, you're really not supposed to deviate from it. So you don't get these wild depictions of Christ like you do in certain other forms of art, for example. They are very rich in symbolism. There are some beautiful icons depicting biblical stories. Should we say biblical facts? So they really can be made into teaching tools in a more efficient way than other forms of art. You could argue they're a little bit esoteric with some of the symbols, but I think that comes from us just not being rooted in Christian imagery anymore. And so you have, in this period, what I would argue is a robust theology of icons. Whether we agree or disagree on veneration is another thing. But I think their argument is very forceful, and obviously the church did too. The iconoclasts, though, I mean, they do have some precedent, but once you start poking at it, I, I just don't know if it's there. Now, I know you expect me to make the Calvinist argument here, <laughs> and I'll try to argue from their viewpoint, too, uh, and we'll do that. We'll look at the Westminster Standards. We'll look at a very distilled and pure form of Reformed theology uh, when we do that. But if you, if you look at that, I mean, are you convinced by the incarnational argument? I mean, I, I see where they're coming from, and, and, and to be fair, and I'll just be a full disclosure here and say, you know, I'm not opposed to, re to, this, to artwork, okay? I'm to not depictions opposed of to Christ. Yeah, I have some in my office, okay? And I'll also kind of counter-signal a little bit on the Byzantine stuff, but I'll get to that. But at the same time, to say, like, this is decisive in the way that some people want to make it decisive, I'm not sure that that's necessarily Well, if true. you don't believe in the authority of the councils, it won't be decisive. But if you believe right. that it's the voice of God when speaking in, in an ecumenical council, then you're bound to believe it's decisive. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But at the same time, you know, I think he makes a good point in saying that, you know, the, this idea that Christ has become visible in that sense. And so we can depict Christ in that way. I think that's a fine argument. It's just this, it's just kind of the baggage that comes around with it and saying like, this has somehow solved the issue once and for all. Obviously it hasn't because we're still having this debate, right? Well, I mean, yeah, but does it ever solve any, any issue? I mean, we still have monophysites today. Um, yeah, but not very, well, true. We have, we have Aryans many. today. I mean, we have Jews, you know, <laughs> we have people who just out and out reject Christ. We still have Mohammedans. Which, I mean, I it, it really does seem to be tied up in... I mean, the argument is a later Jewish argument, although in the Torah, you do have image depictions mentioned in a certain place. Or not in the Torah, excuse Well, obviously in the Torah, we talked about it. But in the, right. uh, the Talmud, I mean, there are instances where images are used or described, like a sure. rabbi is using, is putting an image here or there. So even in Judaism, you know, Judaism becomes more radicalized against images as does Islam as well. And scholars are a little bit divided. I think the majority would say that Islam had a big influence on iconoclasm. Others would say, well, no, it's more independent because there's not a lot of strong evidence other than geographic proximity to Islamic right. areas. And right. that, that's probably fair too. If you're looking for just hard evidence, that, that is probably fair. So, all right. Well, we've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. 
All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. This is Word Fitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking about icons, iconoclasm, and other things that make Zellwin uncomfortable. <laughs> Welcome back. All right, Zellwin, we went through the eastern part. I presented the arguments of both sides, and I know you're chomping at the bit to talk about Western art. So take us over into the West and up to the Reformation. Well, the only reason I want to talk about Western art is because you you were making the argument for the, the Eastern depictions, you know, Eastern iconography. I was presenting and... the Eastern Orthodox's argument. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, making their argument for them. They're making their argument for them. But I, I mean, I think that in the West, I mean, just speaking in broad terms, I mean, we have a, a very rich artistic tradition, some of which, you know, maybe we would kind of hesitate with you know like depicting god the father for example which i think even the east would kind of hesitate to do yeah the closest Uh, you get are depictions of the ancient of days which is not the same or a hand maybe right and you you get that you get that tradition in the west going on you you know fairly early too but i don't know i guess i feel that the 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 wide representation and the, the the greater variety within the west is something that we don't have to be ashamed of you know, as if that was bad. I mean, you've seen some very magnificent depictions of uh, biblical scenes. I mean, we've used quite a few of them for some of our, our Oh, absolutely. Artwork. Um, no, my, so. my argument in the previous section was simply that when you have rules and boundaries, you don't end up with uh, the abuses that are going to occur sometime. But that's more of a modern art issue, probably. And a little bit of the sure. Renaissance, because the, the chubby little cherubim and things like that. <laughs> but you do have blasphemous images used in modern art. Sure. Um, because there's no sense of, of, but I mean, that's a larger problem than just art. But anyway, go, go on. Yeah. And, and if, if that's what you're going for is, you know, just to have boundaries and to define those boundaries. Sure. I could see that. But at the same time, I do think that even, you know, if let's say we're using those boundaries with the, the greater variety within the West you know, we do have some fine images that would be just as appropriate for, for teachers. Sure, and well. there are powerful and striking images in Western tradition, absolutely. But mm-hmm. um, we do need to look to the power of memes here and understand <laughs> that one universal truth is that meme magic is real, and we've seen it work <laughs> because you've seen the influence <laughs> that memes can have, and you've also seen the power or the lack of power that terrible memes have. Poorly done, poorly made, poorly constructed ones, no influence. And so the same applies to religious art. And the devil wants you to have bad religious art because he knows the power therein. That's my (laughs) argument. (laughs) We just finally have a a name to put to it. So (laughs) there you go. Are are you Um, saying that, are you saying that the East has a stronger meme game? Is that what we're saying? That's a a tricky one to say. I mean, it's a pretty (laughs) strong meme game. I'm just saying like pretty strong, really. Yeah, but I'll, I'll counter the, the meme game with the, the, the Gothic cathedrals and just the sheer beauty of them, but go on. I mean, <laughs> Hagia Sophia, though. Um, that's fair. Is it it has say, minarets now, but that's beside the point. For now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are the great Gothic cathedrals. We can't uh, can't argue with that. The winged buttress, that's how they got so big. The West did that. So there you go. Now we turn into an architecture podcast. But yeah, uh, so that's a good argument. Who has the stronger memes, the East or the West? Let us know in the comments. Uh, we'd, we'd love to know what you think. Who has the stronger meme game? But yeah, um, uh, art is powerful, a powerful force for good. Also, it can be a force for evil as well, 
also can just rot your brain if you're just watching, uh, looking at bad, bad images all day. Now, you have these great images, these great works of art, both uh, paintings and, of course, sculptures produced in the West. But there is also the creeping superstition that comes up in the West as well. And you might find things more egregious in the West, or maybe we're just closer to them. I mean, if you have, okay, go look at this piece of art, or if you do this, you'll get this certain result. Now, you do have some of that in the East as well. But there are a lot of Roman Catholic traditions regarding images that are not officially sanctioned, but nevertheless are folk traditions that are used quite broadly across certain cultures. So we mentioned burying St. Joseph upside down, for example. That's a that's a superstition. You know, you have the syncretistic practices that come along with a lot of the Jesuits. And so they want to meld Western Catholicism with New World paganism. And so you get Santa Muerte, for example, right? St. Death that is venerated in large parts of Mexico and now large parts of the United States. And so art traditions, because religious art is intrinsically linked to theology and to doctrine and to practice, art is often the vehicle used to promote this kind of thing. And so you take Santa Muerte, for example, and what is her image? Well, it's basically a Lady Grim Reaper. It's a very stark image, a very powerful image, and one that now occupies the consciences of many deceived souls. Beautiful, wonderful Christian art can do good for a person's mind and soul, but a corrupting artwork can lead people down a path toward hell. To put to put none <laughs> too fine a point on it. I was it, trying but. to put it I was trying to think of a of a lighter way to say it. Perdition, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, and that it brings up a good point though, you know, and the reason why we're talking about this and the reason why, as you say, I'm I'm maybe getting uncomfortable with some of this. Maybe that's just my natural proclivities, but because art does have power, the image does have power. We cannot pretend that visual images don't affect us. You know, the, the, the images that we surround ourselves with, the images that we, you know, put, put into our homes, whatever the case might be, they do have an effect on us. And I think that is the reason why especially in the West, and maybe you want to talk very briefly about some of the, the, the troubles in the West, we do have this strong strain of iconoclasm also in, you know, in theology as well. Yes, and we'll get to that a little bit. I mean, but I think anyone can see, say, the difference between Christ Pantocrator, the Sistine Chapel, uh, and down to something like Solomon's Head of Christ, and then to, to some of the really goofy cartoons Tunish representations that we have. Sure. You, you see how, how I don't want to say the art is, is, has become worse or anything like that, but you see the difference between an image produced in ancient times, but in the Renaissance, in the modern times, and then, of course, in the current year. So, uh, but we're going to run out of time. So, superstition uh, does come up in the West. There are con- some, some concerns about images. But that's not what kickstarts the Reformation. What kickstarts the Reformation are two things. One, Luther's insistence on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And two, uh, the socio-political factors of Europe at the time, particularly their conflicts with the Muslims. Now, Western iconoclasm is not going to be Muslim influence, in my right. opinion. It comes up at a time where we're at war with the Muslims, but that's just world history at the time. Sure. Um, it's world history well, today. The Muslims were kind of... Muslims were kind of wore it with everybody at the time, but anyway. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Luther kickstarts the Reformation. Apologies to Huss and Wycliffe. We, we don't have time. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Very early on, you have the radical reformers like Munzer and Karlstadt, Zwingli, who are opposed to images. Okay. Well, all right. Now, when you think of Karlstadt, for example, you might not think of uh, iconoclasts at first. You might. I mean, that's a big thing that he did. But he begins to break away from Catholic tradition in a way that Luther would not have liked. So Luther, as we read in the intro, actually defends images. But his defense, basically, Zelwyn, uh, would you agree, is more of their uh, teaching tools. Correct. Yeah, he he doesn't make a spiritual argument quite like what the East does. Right. And I and I think especially within Lutheranism in general, that's very often the argument that you will hear is that 
art has a certain teaching function and therefore, you know, good art has good teaching. And, and maybe you would say, you know, especially bad art or especially kitschy kind of art would be kind of a more of a negative thing. But yeah, I mean, it really is this idea that we are learning something from the picture. And we're not using it as a way of idolatry. We're not using it as a way of superstition. We're not using it as a way of honoring Christ. It really just is a way of learning something from this picture and, you know, perhaps drawing our minds upward in, in some generic sense, you know, to, to, I don't know how you want to put it, to help us to think on heavenly things, but not actually imagining that we are seeing right. something in it. Right. Right. And, right. and so... During the Reformation, you are going to have outbreaks of what are known as, what's the word here, Zelwyn? Bildenstorm in Dutch. Uh, it's a little bit different uh, in German, but that's that's the Dutch yeah, one. Bildersturm, yeah. Yeah, the yeah, Bilders, yeah, that would be the German. So literally, it, literally image storm. Image storm, what, yeah. Image storm, yeah. right? Uh, in English, we're going to call it iconoclasm, or the or the or the fury, right? And so these things break out from the 1520s. I mean up until the 1560s, okay, mm-hmm. in various parts of Europe. Don't have time to get into those. Uh, what you see depicted in movies are them, like, mash, bashing things and, and knocking stuff down and setting fire to images. That did happen. But historically, that is very locally contained and very limited. As the Reformation went on and Reformed influences took over, it, the images were removed rather quietly or otherwise sure. covered up. That's why we still have some of them. There is a lot of valuable art lost because of these guys going in and breaking it, but by and large, it was removed quietly. We come to the next of uh, what history calls the Magisterial Reformers, Magisterial Reformers being Luther Zwingli and then, of course, John Calvin. And Calvin is the great systematician of the Reformation, and he is very much against the use of images. And he is going to use the same arguments that the iconoclasts in Byzantium used, namely that the Old Testament forbids the use of images, or what to say the Bible in his estimation prohibits the use of images, and that the historic practice of the church was not to use them. Hmm. So so while he, he might claim to agree to the seven ecumenical councils, obviously not that part. <laughs> but for Calvin... And for the Protestants who don't use images in worship, this is a diff- This is a little bit different because, as we mentioned, the Byzantine iconoclasts still venerated certain objects. They would still kiss a cross, for example, but that would not happen in Calvin's Geneva. And in right. fact, in some of the Reformed churches, they would forbid even an empty cross be used. So forget about an argument over a crucifix. You might not even see crosses sometimes, according to some theologians. The English Reformation is a bit mixed on this, but eventually powers that be uh, are in place in England, which are more on uh, the Calvinistic side of things, and that's going to be during your English Civil War. And so as part of all of that, we end up with something called the Westminster Standards, which is which are the doctrinal standards for Scottish Presbyterianism. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger Catechism, Shorter Catechism, and the Directory for Public Worship. Now, the Continental Reform, they've got their three forms of unity, but I want to focus on the Westminster Confession because it is important for uh, why Americans might have this aversion to images. Okay, so we're going to go to the Westminster Larger Catechism. This is going to show you how Calvin's doctrine of worship developed later in England. And really, this is what becomes kind of the standard for true Reformed or Calvinistic Christianity. Okay, so question 109 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. What sins are forbidden in the second commandment? The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself, the making any representation of God, of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, all worshiping of it, or God in it or by it, the making of any representation of feigned deities, and all worship of them or service belonging to them, all superstitious devices, corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, 
whether invented and taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever, simony, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, hindering, and opposing the worship and ordinances which God hath appointed. And so for historic reform theology, it's not only about the uses of images in worship, which is what the Byzantine conflict was about, it's about worship in general, that God does not command the use of images. He doesn't command the use of vestments, okay, or right. liturgy as we would understand it. There is always an order of worship, but that that is different. So for them, it's a much broader question. And so not only can you not make a physical image, like a painting or a statue, you cannot devise an image in your head of Jesus Christ. Well, and I, I think that's, I think that actually drives home maybe the thing that we fail to to understand most of the time when we're having these kinds of debates or, frankly, one-sided debates against re- Reformed theology and saying, you know, oh, how could they forbid imagery? Well, for you have as we read there from Westminster, and although that's only a certain strain of Reformed theology, but that's beside the point. Well, I mean, it's still it's still representative. It's a it's representative. It's a, it's a geographical one, and honestly, yeah. if you if you's going to be reformed, this is what you should sign up for. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you make that argument, but <laughs> but my point is is that we see that they're couching these questions in the question of worship. Correct. Does God command this in for His worship or not? They are saying no. God has not commanded this, therefore we cannot use them. Whereas you'll notice, like with Luther and his quote, and very often the the way that these kinds of things are presented within Lutheranism, the question within Lutheranism is not a question of worship, it's a question of teaching. Right. Okay? We see them as a fairly neutral thing that could be used in a positive way. So it's not, it doesn't matter whether or not God commanded it, he hasn't expressly forbidden it, so it's okay for us to use it. Whereas they're saying God wants to be worshipped in a specific way, and we should try to conform our worship to that practice. So it, it really is two very different approaches to the question, which is why I think there's so often a misunderstanding about what, say, Reformed theology is trying to say, because right. they don't really have the same question in mind. Right, and possibly why Reformed theology comes across so strongly against. Sure. Now— this persists on into America, but now, by and large, most American Christians don't think twice. They they would reject the veneration of icons, but they would have representations of Christ on tracts they pass out, for example, or sure. books they publish. So the iconoclastic nature of even a lot of Reformed Christians today is not as severe as what you find during the Reformation era. Sure. And and certainly during later England. So, or at least up into the Civil War. And you could argue that maybe that they don't represent uh, the majority. They just happen to have power, right? But <laughs> it was influential in Scotland, and we'll leave it at sure. that. <laughs> so this is partially why, though, America doesn't, you know, doesn't have the great rep- reputation for producing good religious art. Now, Granted, you could be a Calvinist and still be a, a master, right? You could you could be Rembrandt, right? So it's it, just because you 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 really take the second commandment very seriously doesn't mean that that you can't produce uh, beautiful artwork. So not all artwork is forbidden. The Calvinists are not Amish, you know they don't they don't forbid all visual depictions, but they have certainly softened on their the way they view images of Christ. And a lot of times they use some of the arguments that Luther used, but also some of the argument that the original iconophiles used about sure. the incarnation. Well, that that's where we're at. Just take a couple minutes here and talk about art. Zelwyn, what is the place, what kind of place should art have in the Christian home and in the church? What kind of use and what kind of function? I think there is a place for a purely aesthetic use of artwork. You know, that it's kind of like we were, I was talking the other day, we we're going through the Gospel of Mark in Bible class right now, and we got to Jesus talking about the woman who covers his uh, covers him in pure nard, and the disciples are upset about it. And I, I pointed out that Jesus' response that she has done a beautiful thing for me, I think 
justifies this kind of aesthetic use of art. We don't have to be, you know, constantly trying to find the, the lowest possible cost or something like that when it comes to our art. It's okay to give God our best. And I think if we are giving him our best, you know, and using it in that way, yes, I think that can be a, a beneficial thing. And it's also certainly appropriate to have artwork within the home as a way of, of teaching, as a way of, of, you know, beautifying the space. The The place that I get very uncomfortable with is when we start to use this kind of imagery as something more, as if we are engaging in an act of, you know, a, a kind of worship through this art or something like that. That's where I start to get very uncomfortable. But I do think there is certainly a place for beauty is certainly a place for teaching through art. And it is certainly something that, you know, we can use in good conscience for that reason. So when you go to war, you are not carrying the labarum with you, (laughs) what you're telling me. Yeah, I'm afraid not. I'm a little little disappointed. A little disappointed. That's okay. Hey, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. And what harm would there be if someone were to illustrate the important stories of the entire Bible in their proper order for a small book which might become known as a layman's Bible? Indeed, one cannot bring God's words and deeds too often to the attention of the common man. Martin Luther